Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. This month, we share an ambitious two-part interview with Doug, a lifelong deserter, commune dweller, and bioregionalist organizer currently living in Western Canada. Doug is interviewed by his nephew Guy, a contributor to a militant network of communes in the region. Doug shares invaluable recollections on the experience of living underground and in exile in Canada and Sweden while refusing U.S. military service in the Vietnam War. We're excited to share the interview due to the many lessons and resonances Doug's reflections offer for today's collective efforts at reinhabitation and resistance. Here, Guy and Doug. So this is Guy. I'm here with my uncle Doug on a collectively owned piece of land on the Olympic Peninsula. And we're conducting this interview in a building that several of us built together over the past several years and hoping to have a conversation for Partisan Gardens uh, about the history of the Back to the Land movement and bioregionalism and some of what we can learn from the past and what currently exists in the present. So welcome, Doug. Thanks for being here. Mm, thank you. And I thought maybe we could just start off by, if you could give a little overview of the origins of bioregionalism and the bioregional movement. For those of you that don't know, bioregionalism is very close to uh, the philosophy of the Green Party. But where the Green Party is something that has a political context, bioregionalism instead has a cultural context. Mm -hmm. And the fundamental difference between this is that uh, for people who live uh, locally and in community, uh, politics is something they have very little purchase on. They don't own politics, in other words. But culturally, they have complete ownership because they can modulate their own behavior and give feedback to others uh, as to what they think is culturally appropriate. So the idea of bioregionalism is rooted in local autonomy where people take ownership of their own lives and do a lot of assistance of other people to help them take ownership of their lives mm -hmm. and thus take a certain amount of ownership of features like watersheds, mountains, and 
water bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the key uh, to bioregionalism is really uh, that it requires activity, constant involvement, and living a life that is based on both morality and respect. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you for that. Um, could you tell me a little bit about how you came to be involved with bioregionalism and first encountered it um, and your early experiences? Well, <clears throat> my experience was really uh, fundamentally shaped by growing up in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Uh, we lived in a rural environment, and we were in Alaska for a few years before it became a state. So I had the experience of living in what was essentially a territorial frontier environment. Mm-hmm. The people that I respected were uh, homesteaders that had built their own places mm-hmm. and had built their own gardens and did a lot of work uh, to keep those up. Mm-hmm. We lived on a gravel road uh, two miles off the highway, mm-hmm. and the people that lived there uh, basically came uh, to Alaska to have a simple life, mm-hmm. and were not so interested in making a whole lot of money as to making uh, a life that was successful that they could raise their kids in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the kids I went to school with um, largely uh, knew things like how to hunt, how to fish, uh, how to provide firewood for the family, and were required to do chores. Mm-hmm. Um, so this shaped my understanding from the age of 12 into my teenage years. And one of the fundamental things that happened was I happened to be there when Alaska became a state in 1959. Mm-hmm. I was 16, and I had a bad feeling in my gut that there was going to be a lot of loss. Mm -hmm. And within a few years, uh, my gut feelings were played out as Mm -hmm. people shifted into a money economy more than a subsistence lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I went to school in 1961 in California, Mm -hmm. there were people with beards who were basically um, dropouts, uh, and we called them beatniks. Mm I had grown a beard at the age of 18 living in a camp, and when I came down, uh, these people kind of just recognized me, although I was younger than them, Mm -hmm. as somebody that wanted to be like them. Mm -hmm. And so I was sort of assimilated into a counterculture without knowing it. Mm -hmm. Within a couple of years, um, this became much more formalized as people discovered um, marijuana, Mm-hmm. Um, so I was 19 when I first smoked some marijuana mm-hmm. and uh, of course it was illegal mm-hmm. and that sort of made me a member of uh, a class of people who were hiding uh, their uh, their lifestyle mm-hmm. and that sort of leveraged into the sense of let's kind of be a subculture Mm -hmm. in which we recognize each other and and care for one another. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that really plays out into bioregionalism because it was more of an organic, Mm -hmm. just sort of discovering. But I know that because I grew up in Alaska, when I would recognize people who were living on the Big Sur or lived out of town Mm -hmm. and had independent lifestyles, 
that didn't have a lot to do with money, um, I automatically respected them. I was primed to recognize the rural values mm -hmm. of independence. Mm -hmm. And I think bioregionalism comes a lot from those values, mm -hmm. although many of the people who celebrate bioregionalism grew up in cities and had to learn uh, rural skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and so I know that you ended up living in Sweden and in Stockholm um, and did some organizing around the United Nations Assembly that happened there and also encountered some of the, the commune movement and back to the land movement in Sweden. Um, was the bioregional movement active in Sweden where you were as well? I think it was. Um, it was different than here in North America. Uh, for one thing, uh, Sweden ran a few years behind the cultural upheavals that were going on in the U.S., and the cultural upheavals that happened in Sweden were uh, softer, mm -hmm. whereas in the U.S. there was uh, a lot of uh, outright uh, military-style suppression mm -hmm. of the hippies because of uh, the Vietnam War mm -hmm. and all of the structure around that. Uh, Sweden, on the other hand, basically just said, as a neutral nation, we do not want war in our universe, mm -hmm. and we will make the uh, decision to take in people who have been injured by that war and mm -hmm. providing them with asylum. Mm -hmm. I was one of those people. Mm -hmm. I arrived in Sweden in 1969 mm -hmm. after having lived underground in Canada on a false name for three years. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> So when I arrived in Sweden, I'd been working as a, a fisherman and a, a logger and a, a worker on labor uh, construction projects. Mm -hmm. I'd worked in uh, lumber uh, camps. Mm -hmm. I had been uh, doing um, uh, hard work, uh, mm -hmm. fishing, and, uh, and I'd built myself up to being uh, pretty strong. Mm -hmm. And I... Uh, was 26 years old mm -hmm. and had um, the object of my life was to uh, find uh, a place where I could actually relax. Mm -hmm. Having been underground on a false name for three years, mm -hmm. I didn't have very much relaxation. I was always paranoid. Mm -hmm. And when I got to Sweden and was able to use my real name again, mm -hmm. uh, I had an identification uh, that coincide also with uh, suddenly being able to drop my guard. Mm -hmm. The people that I found that I really resonated with though were the ones who were also living underground under the Swedish. Um, it was illegal to smoke uh, marijuana, mm -hmm. but we had a very active and fairly large community of people that enjoyed that mm -hmm. and moved towards having big gatherings with music. Mm -hmm. um, although most of our type of music was not the big commercial rock and roll. Mm -hmm. It was provided by people who like to play for other people. Mm -hmm. And in that, uh, I think there's a big key to bioregionalism is that uh, you tend to try and have self-entertainment. Uh, mm -hmm. And the whole idea of bringing children into uh, a stable 
community with um, mutual assistance. Mm -hmm. In other words, having co-parenting, mm -hmm. having the uh, ability to borrow from one another uh, during times where maybe you don't have the sufficient income to provide food, mm -hmm. but you have neighbors that you know you can pay back mm -hmm. uh, in a neighborly way. Uh, these kinds of things develop what I was calling culture. Mm -hmm. In other words, respect for one another and respect also for one another's needs. Mm -hmm. And then this translates into uh, respect and care for the environment. Mm -hmm. So 50 years ago, next month, mm -hmm. is when the, United States, when the United Nations came to Sweden mm -hmm. for the first UN conference on the human environment. Mm -hmm. And it just turned out that I was already working uh, in ecology at the time, mm -hmm. and partnered with people for about 18 months mm -hmm. to prepare what amounted to an alternative statement mm -hmm. to the United Nations. Mm -hmm. uh, this sort of fit with the idea of counterculture, um, self-motivation, um, mm -hmm. taking responsibility within the community, mm -hmm. and articulating what we thought were the true issues that needed to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Uh, most of which were being avoided by the um, the powers of national governments, mm -hmm. and in fact today are being suppressed and avoided even to this day. And I would say that my hero is Greta Thunberg, mm -hmm. who calls this out. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so uh, it's a little difficult for me to talk about this without getting somewhat... Um, Emotional because mm -hmm. as I enter my 80th year, mm -hmm. I feel we have wasted almost mm -hmm. five decades. Mm -hmm. We have, in fact, wasted five decades mm -hmm. that we dearly needed yeah. to have survival of our uh, life network. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about that, um, the alternative assembly and the alternative statement and the organizing that went into that uh, United Nations assembly? We started with a group of maybe 200 people that would meet in Stockholm. Mm -hmm. And although it's embarrassing to say, uh, we called ourselves powwow, mm -hmm. taking the idea of assembly mm -hmm. Uh, from the First Nations experience of bringing tribes together mm -hmm. to celebrate uh, identity. Mm -hmm. And we felt that this was a way to sort of approach bringing all the different cultures into Sweden, where we'd have people from Africa and South America and the Oceania, mm -hmm. uh, combining with the people who were um, coming from Europe, Mm -hmm. And what we wanted to do was provide a safe environment where dialogue could occur without hindering uh, one another by mm -hmm. uh, assisting or insisting mm -hmm. that uh, it go a certain direction according to um, Robert's Rules of Order, for example, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. We were wanting to build a dialogue mm -hmm. and... One of the things that came out of this was, in the bioregional sense, we called it circles of correspondence. Mm -hmm. The intention being, well, we met each other, and now we need to talk with one another over time. Mm -hmm. And the only way to do that is to write and inform each other by, by media mm -hmm. of our successes and our failures. Mm 
Mm -hmm. The people that I worked with um, were predominantly uh, Swedish radicals mm -hmm. who were very well organized. Mm -hmm. And uh, I came into it uh, from the point of view of I was actually teaching university by then. Mm -hmm. And I had a class uh, every year of California students in their third year mm -hmm. of school. Mm -hmm. And some of these students really wanted to be uh, active in doing something. So they became kind of a, a little workforce in which uh, I had the ability to sort of plug them into just different things that were, were happening. Uh, some of them went to work on the daily newspaper. Mm -hmm. Others were sort of guides for people coming in from out of town. Mm -hmm. uh, they all spoke perfect English, so this was an advantage. Mm -hmm. uh, the um, the thing that happened, uh, which we did not really expect, was that Stuart Brand gave a group called the Hog Farm $50,000 to come to Stockholm and do a um, street theater event. Mm -hmm. They were pretty well organized, but two buses mm -hmm. uh, with them that they were living in. Uh, but because they were from California, they had money and culture and uh, an arrogance mm -hmm. where they wanted to really take over things. Mm -hmm. And this became a problem because the Swedes that had been working for 18 months were almost out of uh, energy. They were exhausted. They were, mm -hmm. okay, here we are. Let's get it going. And then all of a sudden, the hog farm was uh, monopolizing the stage mm -hmm. and speaking better English than the Swedes were mm -hmm. and getting a lot of PR and press. Mm -hmm. as, as an American uh, deserter mm -hmm. living in Sweden mm -hmm. and speaking the Swedish language, I felt um, somewhat powerless to, uh, to face this uh, barrage mm -hmm. of um, alternative people from California coming with... Uh, their academic assumptions mm -hmm. about what ecology was. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had indigenous people coming from uh, all over North and South America, mm -hmm. which Sweden had allowed to come on their own passports. Mm -hmm. So Onondaga people, Mohawk people, uh, people from Alaska, where I was from, mm -hmm. were coming to Sweden as themselves, mm -hmm. being invited into Sweden to represent their people mm -hmm. uh, in non-national uh, identities. Mm -hmm. And this was not really uh, picked up on, I think, by a lot of the Californians. Mm -hmm. Their idea was to promote the whole Earth catalog, which mm -hmm. they were being paid by, mm -hmm. to bring the version of the alternative that was couched in California terms and the failure to take on a global responsibility mm -hmm. or a respectful responsibility to the people who had been working hard was, I think, a big failure based mm -hmm. on uh, a cultural assumption that California is the golden state mm -hmm. and people there have the answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, unfortunately, um, in many cases, they turned out to be right. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, one of the people that I spent a lot of time with who came and spent uh, several days at my house after the conference was named Peter Berg. Mm -hmm. And Peter turned out to be uh, a genius mm -hmm. who, um, if you could get him to listen once in a while, mm -hmm. would have very astute things to say. Mm -hmm. 
And he is the originator of Planet Drum mm -hmm. in California, which I think is a very significant uh, document that's been put out over the years since mm -hmm. the early 70s. Peter and I um, participated in several uh, bioregional gatherings mm -hmm. subsequent to that. And um, he was a hard guy to get along with, had a good big ego, but he really did have a, a, a wide-ranging sensibility. And he would go in and meet with people like Murray Bookchun mm -hmm. or uh, Gary Snyder. Mm -hmm. uh, these are people that... Um, that we really greatly respected because they had been writing about what we were thinking was important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you shared a publication of the first issue of Planet Drum with me last year, um, and I was really struck by the manifesto in it, Raise the Stakes, on the back page, um, and in particular struck by the mention of the Narita Airport struggle, um, which is such a touchstone and such a reference point for so many of our contemporary land defense struggles. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a history that I don't see talked about very often outside of my particular anarchist or radical milieus. Um, and so I was really struck by this document from a, a completely different milieu and organization than I'm involved in also referencing this struggle and these notions of building relations with people struggling across the world in different places, um, not on a national identity sense, but on a sense that the struggles are linked. Um, yeah, here we get into um, a lot of complexity because these uh, issues uh, surface uh, from time to time in which people are just... Um, so pressed against the wall that they have to take uh, direct action. Mm -hmm. So whether it's an airport or a nuclear power plant or um, a Trident submarine uh, coming into a port for the first time, mm -hmm. and people just say, this is intolerable. Mm -hmm. It can't go on in a, in, a, in, in a planet in which I feel I want to continue living. Mm -hmm. And as these happen, and as new generations take on uh, the knowledge and the necessity mm -hmm. for them to take uh, individual and collective actions, uh, we run up against a very well-organized, deliberate uh, emasculation. And, and that's not a good word because it is gender-based, but it is basically the same thing as mm -hmm. to just cut you off from being able to express your humanity in a, in, in, in a collective sense. Mm -hmm. And the way that you get around that uh, has to evolve because uh, things in the, the world of, of national police state uh, propping up of the uh, ownership class uh, get down and dirty once you begin to really have any effect on the way they want things run. So it's necessary sometimes to have uh, strongholds, mm -hmm. essentially in places like uh, very rural, hard-to-get-to environments. Mm -hmm. uh, this was also understood in Sweden, where mm -hmm. uh, people were dropping out and forming uh, collectives up in the mountains, mm -hmm. 
and making alliances with the native people of Sweden, the Sami, mm-hmm. and saying to them that they respected their cultural identity mm-hmm. and wanted to support the fact that they needed to uh, have self-determination and control over their territory. Mm-hmm. That has happened to a large extent in Scandinavia mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that um, the Sami people are now being given uh, recognition that they have rights of management mm-hmm. of their territory over hunting, fishing, and trapping. Mm-hmm and can actually be the uh, bureaucracy mm-hmm. allowing people to uh, to access those natural resources. We're hundreds of years away from that kind of thing in North America. Yeah, I've, I've shared with you and you've read uh, a book by Sabu Koso on radiation and revolution. Um, and he writes a lot about struggles in Japan. And I was, I was recently talking with... Um, another one of his collaborators, Norahito, uh, who does a lot of research on what he calls inhabitants' struggles in Japan. And a lot of what he is looking at is um, kind of two different modalities of struggle, and one of which is very ideologically informed or politically informed, and often tends to be people from the city who are well-intentioned and often young and have a lot of ideas. Um, and get really fired up and involved in something and then maybe disappear <laughs> quickly uh, versus what he points to as this kind of 10,000 different inhabitant struggles of people who are organizing in their local areas about issues that affect them directly. And Narita Airport is one of those examples where the farmers who were growing food there were the ones who were most actually militantly involved in the struggle long after the university students and the radicals came and participated and left. And it seems as though there's an overlap here with the idea of bioregionalism and forming an attachment to a place and feeling a sense of, of need to defend that place or a way of life attached to it. That's very well put. Um, <clears throat> I'm not so familiar with the Japanese examples, but I do know that um, a lot of people uh, in the bioregional movement believe that the most radical thing you can do is grow a garden. Mm -hmm. And that gets to the idea of Mm self-sufficiency. It gets to the idea of having enough food Mm -hmm. to be able to share. Mm -hmm. And once again, um, that's a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, The term Mm -hmm. re-inhabitation, which I believe was coined by Peter Berg, Mm -hmm. uh, expresses that in the sense that if you re-inhabit a watershed, Mm-hmm. You take responsibility for protecting uh, watershed values. Mm-hmm. So you will be uh, not just standing by and being um, dismayed by a landslide uh, that's polluting your river with silt, mm-hmm. but you will see the landslide in the context of the upper watershed that's been clear-cut logged. Mm-hmm. You'll see the watershed in terms of the need to... Uh, try and preserve a snowpack Mm -hmm. so that you have water coming in in August Mm -hmm. for salmon to uh, spawn in. Mm -hmm. And so you'll take a sense of responsibility for that, whether it's trying to uh, do some remediation on slopes Mm -hmm. and uh, revegetate bare soil, or 
go and stand in the way of the people that are going to do the next clear cut and mm -hmm. say, no, look at the damage you've already caused. Take responsibility for correcting that damage before you take any more wood out. Mm -hmm. And of course, this puts you in a direct confrontation. And this is going on right now on Vancouver Island. Mm -hmm. And it's going on in, in other places over uh, similar issues where people are saying enough is more than enough. Mm -hmm. We cannot allow this to continue because we're seeing our, base, our very basis of life being taken out from under our feet. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, uh, this message gets really distorted by uh, an academic uh, proliferation of lots and lots of publications, some of which are uh, infused with propaganda that prop up the state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you were talking about the need the people perceived in Sweden and also in other places to have these strongholds or rural strongholds that could withstand repression from the police state or be a place for people to, to live slightly more freely. Um, and that kind of, I think, brings us to the, the larger scope of the Back to the Land movement in Sweden and around the world. And um, I'm kind of curious, just first of all, how you viewed and participated in the back to the land movement um, and whether it felt like part of a larger revolutionary strategy, a longer term program or, or more like an escape from everyday life under capitalism um, or a combination of the two. You know, that's a really difficult thing to try and address. Um, the context that I have for that, uh, the time I spent in Sweden was only five years. Mm -hmm. But if I look at the people that I participated with in those days, the proportion of them that when I go back as I did three years ago and find the ones who are still alive, mm -hmm. uh, my sense of friendship and continued uh, alliance within the environmental uh, and artistic movements, uh, I would say that probably on the order of 80 to 90% of my friends were still walking the path mm -hmm. that I felt that I was on 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. When I go through uh, the ranks of the rural people in British Columbia, mm -hmm. uh, the proportion drops. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, I would say maybe 20% of my friends have held to the path of not being uh, embedded in the capitalist economy. Mm -hmm. If I go to California, uh, it's difficult because I don't really know how to travel in a place where uh, it's so expensive. Mm -hmm. But I do know that there are people uh, living out who mm -hmm. are continuing to do the restoration uh, that they've talked about. Mm -hmm. And I'd say that uh, the proportion is something like one out of five. Mm -hmm. The ones that we've lost are um, driving new cars, mm -hmm. living in suburbs or apartments in the city, mm -hmm. and have uh, mortgages. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I find that, you know, there's there still people that I recognize and that I know. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, um, in the sense of holding to some sort of vision, mm -hmm. um, although I like them, I cannot respect them. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that I have failed in my own life, uh, I lose 
that amount of self-respect in proportion to that loss. Mm. Um, and it's, it's difficult for me because I have, uh, you know, health issues and so on. But the bioregional idea was that um, a person takes responsibility for their own life and mm -hmm. in saying that, their own deaths. Mm -hmm. So the green uh, burials, mm -hmm. the um, ability to uh, let go of uh, perhaps the last three or four years where you might need to be on uh, tubes in a hospital, mm -hmm. those go totally against the bioregional ethic. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've helped people die at home, mm -hmm. and uh, I feel probably most proud mm -hmm. of being part of a group of people who will get together with a, a, a woman or a man mm -hmm. who's living out the last few weeks of their life mm -hmm. and trying to make them comfortable and not let them know that their, uh, their values are going to be um, continued mm -hmm. and that their children will be honored. Mm -hmm. And that their friends will uh, will be around them when they die, mm -hmm. and I hope for that for myself. Mm -hmm. That's really beautiful. Um, yeah. And we were just talking this morning also about um, about that that article by Thomas Nail um, about reframing an ontology of an ecological ontology around death and around dying well and allowing energy and matter and resources to re-enter the, the nutrient cycle rather than disappearing or being locked away or burning quickly in the case of combustion or nuclear power. Um, and so I think it's, yeah, it's an interesting way to circle back to how do we, living well is also dying well, and how do we do that as a culture? It takes a lot of work uh, and it takes a lot of support uh, there are people who are doing beautiful things with the hospice movement. Uh, my own father died in a hospice, uh, and I was with him when that happened. Mm -hmm. um, humanity is a, a wonderful thing mm -hmm. when humanity becomes a part of the animal and plant matrix that we call the ecosystem. Uh, it only gains. Mm -hmm to realize how much nutrient loss we've in, incurred in the last, say, 150 years mm -hmm. uh, in North America, uh, the people are telling us that we've lost, you know, a high proportion of the tilth mm -hmm. of our land. Mm -hmm. When we look at the damage to the forests, the damage to the ocean and lakes and the rivers, uh, it's hard to put a real number on it, but I would mm -hmm. say it's easy to say we've lost half at least of the productive capacity of our ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And we've allowed a bureaucracy to propagate itself that takes responsibility for managing these things, and they're doing a terrible job. Mm -hmm. If you put, uh, for example, a Department of Ecology uh, against uh, a group of people who are living in a watershed, and look at the effectiveness of how they use their money. It's clear that the people living in the watershed are many times more efficient in providing uh, sustainability mm -hmm. than the government is. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the uh, example of how corporations use their privilege to manage the watersheds under their control, mm -hmm. it becomes an exponential. Mm -hmm. Uh, the government, at least, is trying to do something good where the corporations don't give a shit. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So you you mentioned a little bit ago. You mentioned the the high percentage of of your old friends in Sweden who stayed on the path and stayed involved versus the much lower proportion in both British Columbia and California. And I'm wondering if you if you see any themes um, between the people who stayed engaged and what allowed them to stay engaged and what allowed you to stay engaged. Um, and I imagine it's a combination of personal habit and also of context. And I think it's also just more difficult in North America to disentangle oneself um, from the culture here. But I'd be curious to see, um, yeah, to hear how people stayed involved and didn't burn out and didn't become depoliticized and didn't get new cars and new mortgages and all of that. You know, um, Sweden is a very unique place. Um, they never had serfs. Mm. The people who were uh, farming peasant class mm. were free to move around, mm. and they would do a yearly contract with a landowner. Mm. And as they moved around, they had the privilege of going across people's private property mm -hmm. and even camping on it. There's a law in Sweden which uh, amounts to saying every person's right is a right of transit. Mm -hmm. And if they need to camp on your land, they have three days to get off. You can ask them to leave, mm -hmm. but once you ask them to leave, they have three days to pack up their belongings and move away. Mm -hmm. If they're not damaging your land, you have no recourse other than to wish them well on their way. Mm -hmm. This is totally against the European uh, basic uh, kingdom idea mm -hmm. that the king is in charge and he has nobles who mm -hmm. own land who can stop anybody from taking a grouse off of a, a, a tree limb mm -hmm. to, to cook for dinner. Uh, that kind of uh, uh, authority was never allowed by the free people of Sweden. And it goes on to, to, to other things where you have a culture that's built on honesty. Mm. If you meet a person in Sweden, you automatically assume they're an honest person until they disprove that. Mm -hmm. So there's a respect given to a, a, a person that is uh, not present mm -hmm. in North America where we were built around the frontier ethic of putting up fortresses Mm -hmm. in which soldiers lived and went out on forays and cleared the land of indigenous people so that settlers could go in and steal their property. Mm -hmm. uh, and this goes to such a, a, a huge uh, way of the way that you approach authority, mm -hmm. where, you know, during Vietnam, the big war was at home against the youth. Mm -hmm. America was at war with their own children. Mm -hmm. And there's been so much written about that. Mm -hmm. But we miss the importance of this is that the scars are not just on those veterans that came back from Vietnam mm -hmm. full of trauma of what they've done, mm -hmm. but the scars are on the children who knew that their very futures were being robbed from them in the sense that they could just walk down the street with a, a pair of blue jeans on that might be tattered. Mm -hmm. They were targets. Mm -hmm. And I lived through this... Uh, largely as a person underground mm -hmm. without trust of anyone that I didn't know was going to be willing to allow me a place on their land to hide. Mm -hmm. 
Now, that's a rather extreme example, but it's in my experience. Mm -hmm. So I became very adept at uh, recognizing people who would not be my enemy. Mm. And it mm -hmm. turned out that those people who were not my enemies were a small proportion of those that I was meeting. Mm -hmm. In Sweden, as I suddenly arrived there in 1969, mm -hmm. the proportion was flipped. Mm -hmm. My enemies were a small Mm. proportion mm -hmm. and the ordinary people were just live and let live mm -hmm. and the emotional experience of that of letting go of constant defense mm -hmm. was a unique thing now that would have been different in Germany or France or England mm -hmm. but in Sweden it came out of a tradition of allowing people the freedom to develop their lives as they saw fit Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you talk about socialism, uh, people go to the idea of tax and redistribution of wealth and things like that. But that's not the important thing. The important thing is the cultural way that we treat one another. Mm -hmm. And as I look at the, you know, the generations like in their 20s and 30s and even below their 20s, I think the, the people who... Um, I really resonate with are the young people of Greta's uh, generation mm -hmm. that have suddenly said, hey, this is all wrong. We have to do something different. Mm -hmm. We've had some huge opportunities that we've wasted. Yeah. You know, the COVID should have been a, 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 a test mm -hmm. of humanity to reset yeah. the way we treat one another. And we've failed at that test. Mm -hmm. There's no other way to say that. We have failed at it. We have given away the authority to a national government and a healthcare system when we should have been able to behaviorally look at one another and say, look, we have got to do something now that's different than what, our, what we've been doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I would like to be optimistic, mm -hmm. but as an ecologist, when I look at the population of the earth and the behavior of that population, uh, you know, I, I, I can no longer say that I'm a humanist mm -hmm. with the humans embedded in the economy the way it's going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me just recalibrate here. I think that's really important. Um, so I'm curious, I'd like to talk more about the present soon. Um, and, and one of the things that you mentioned about being underground in North America and feeling like most people are your enemy, um, I think that really resonates with a lot of, a lot of people in my milieu and my generation, a lot of radicals who have been operating because of repression with the default assumption that most people are out to get them, um, which is maybe true and also makes real organizing and building real connections difficult. And I think it, it tends to create a, an insular subculture of paranoia oftentimes, um, even if it's, it's there for good reasons or a reaction to real dynamics. Um, and so I think it's interesting to, to hear that resonance and to also see younger people who haven't maybe experienced yet the waves of repression um, that we've experienced 
and who are more outgoing and more in the streets and more engaged with one another. Um, but I'm curious before we before we move on to the present, um, you've you've been involved in a number of different communes and communal living arrangements um, in Canada and in Sweden and in in the U.S. and um, seen those over many decades change and shift. <clears throat> and I'm curious of those um, what you found to be the most healthy and enjoyable examples. Of, of shared communal life and maybe what were the, the particular arrangements or strategies or social technologies that you saw as being most conducive to the more successful egalitarian shared living arrangements? Well, once again, the importance of culture is enormous. If you have a culture uh, of shared economy, even if it's not as uh, well-functioning as it could be, the idea of sharing anything gets you a long ways. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have people who will evolve, because you cannot sustain culture without having a healthy evolution mm -hmm. to, to confront just the way things go, you have to have uh, some rules. Mm -hmm. The community I lived on the longest, almost 30 years, uh, was a land trust community. Mm -hmm. um, it was an intentional community in a group of seven other uh, communities. Mm -hmm. And we met on a um, quarterly basis to discuss how difficult it was to keep uh, a collective economy going mm -hmm. and to care for the land. Our big word was stewardship. Mm -hmm. You lived on the land to take responsibility, to steward it mm -hmm. into the future for a future generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, you could not depend on cultural assumptions because people came with different uh, programming. Mm -hmm. Their unconscious behaviors were formed by uh, the class, the race, the gender uh, that they came from. And the little voices that were always going on in their head about what they should be doing mm -hmm. were based on that childhood experience and, and, and the education that had been uh, overlaid on that. Mm -hmm. So um, we had to have some rules. Mm -hmm. We had to discover how consensus would work. Mm -hmm. uh, consensus is not an easy thing. It's a very difficult thing. Yeah. And you have to actually do a lot of training to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. You have to uh, suddenly learn a new set of manners. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot to be said for being able to uh, sit and listen most of the time and talk a small percentage of the time mm -hmm. and try and be very um, conscious of what the group needs to have happen, mm -hmm. not what you individually have to have happen. Mm -hmm. And making the division of, of how you partition that away into the needs of the group and also be able to preserve enough of your own needs to be satisfied that you're going to be able to go with the group decision. Mm -hmm is a skill that not many people have actually uh, experienced, much less mastered. Mm -hmm. And as, as I grow older and, and watch how uh, the deterioration of these ethics occur, uh, I, I really am sad because I see a lot of um, communities that had really high ideals uh, slipping backwards. Mm -hmm. 
And it, it, it comes down to the willingness to do the individual and group work mm -hmm. to be able to sustain trust. Mm -hmm. So um, a land trust at least takes the property issue off the table. Mm -hmm. And once you have that, where land is no longer uh, a negotiable uh, monetary value, mm -hmm. but something that's going to be passed on from one generation to the next, mm -hmm. uh, you gain a lot of purchase mm -hmm. on the ability to uh, agree with one another on what should happen. Mm -hmm. Because now you're talking about the responsibility rather than the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity needs to be there. You have to be able to uh, have the resources to continue your own life, mm -hmm. but you also have to be honoring the agreement that set up the land trust, that you're going to go by a set of bylaws that will allow wildlife corridors, mm -hmm. wetland functions, mm -hmm. uh, watershed values, mm -hmm. uh, the proportion of, of trees to be able to uh, survive as an intact ecosystem. Mm -hmm. All of these things become things that you live with, not just think about. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's the thing is, you know, you have to get into living in a cultural identity mm -hmm. and have people that will respect you and help you mm -hmm. to sustain it because you can't do it by yourself. Mm -hmm. You can be a hermit. I know hermits that go out mm -hmm. and, and, and are okay, mm -hmm. but it's a very selfish thing. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to be part of a community, you have to have a real ability to... Uh, be tolerant, not only of yourself, because, you know, people fail, mm -hmm. but you have to be tolerant of other people and know that their intention is not to fail, but they do mm -hmm. sometimes fail. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, I'm thinking about this, this issue that we kind of keep circling around of um and i think i think that you phrased it nicely of this contrast between opportunity and responsibility um and and there's all these examples of communes who have seen the economic opportunities unfold as land prices go up in california or other places and and cash in um and, and buy back into mainstream society, um, leveraging the land wealth that they've accumulated. And, um, and it's making me think because we were, we were talking earlier this morning and yesterday about, um, there's the idea of how dependent humanity is globally on capitalist society and on industrial agriculture and that we're all completely dependent on it and completely enmeshed. And the reality is, as you were saying yesterday, that a, a solid third of the human population is deeply entangled still on their local ecologies and their local commune, uh, local commons and, and subsist off of that and live in more of a subsistence framework that is embedded in a responsibility and an attachment to place and to keeping local ecologies and ecosystems intact. And, um, and when I think about how can we engage with the crises that we're living in right now and that are unfolding throughout this century of, of climate change and ecological devastation and everything that's piling on top of each other, um, 
it seems that reframing the idea of of responsibility and opportunity and allying with the people who are already entangled with and dependent on and taking care of local commons um, is is kind of the only way that <laughs> that to me seems seems possible moving forward um, rather than perpetuating this idea that we we need to deal with climate change so that we can maintain our current way of life. Um, and I'm curious what kinds of solidarities or alliances or um, cooperation you've seen in the past with people who are already more embedded in their and in caretaking their local commons um, and what you see as possible in the future. You know, um, <clears throat> When I think, uh, I was born in 1943, two and a half years before the end of the Second World War. And um, as I look at the uh, history of that time, that people were in a war economy and they realized that it was done and dirty. They were gonna have to really give up a lot of their privileges to survive as mm -hmm. a people. Uh, the Victory Garden, uh, concept was uh, front and center mm -hmm. and the idea that uh, you would be able to allow uh, the war effort to take the majority of the economics. Uh, when the war was over, unfortunately, um, as soon as Korea started, the war economy just took off and it's never stopped. Mm -hmm. um, so we've allowed the war against the earth mm -hmm. to be perpetuated for most of my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Now, how, how do we get out of that? How do we get out of a, a monoculture philosophy of farming where it's totally dependent on fossil fuels and artificial ingredients that, that we come out of chemical companies? Mm -hmm. Um, it's obvious from the ecological studies that have been done that better use of the land and higher production would be available if we had people back on the land. Mm -hmm. If they were actually growing uh, organic crops and were putting in the labor mm -hmm. uh, that that requires, we would have a sustainable society, mm -hmm. but it would probably take at least a couple of generations for that to occur. Mm -hmm. We boxed ourselves into a situation now where we're dependent on uh, fossil fuels and corporate ownership to be able to provide most of the uh, uh, level of, of economic um, uh, survival mm -hmm. that we're enjoying. And how do you wean yourself off of that? Mm -hmm. The problem is, uh, and frankly, it is the biggest problem, mm -hmm. it's land ownership. Mm -hmm and dependent on a debt economy. Mm -hmm. And when you're embedded in debt, how can you get out of it? Mm -hmm. You know, people are struggling with that every day now, and most of them are, are basically helpless against the, uh, the economic forces. Mm -hmm. How do you get out of the situation where um, you're dependent on uh, packaged foods that come over-processed, Overpackaged, mm -hmm. um, you know, to get there from here, 
is going to be very painful mm -hmm. and very difficult. Mm -hmm. But if you're willing to lower your life uh, style mm -hmm. to the point where you're living at the poverty level, as I am, mm -hmm. you have a lot of freedom that you gain by that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I measure my uh, wealth in free time, mm -hmm. not in the ability to have a, a large bank account or be able to sustain debt. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not really sure if this is going towards answering your question because mm -hmm. maybe it's not a question that can be answered. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are overbuilt, overpopulated, and uh, habituated to a, a level of consumption that we can't sustain. It's obvious. Mm -hmm. uh, we're taking away uh, the future of our grandchildren on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. and my grandchildren are... Um, are going to have a much harder time than I've had. Mm -hmm. uh, I've lived through a golden age of economics mm -hmm. that I didn't actually deserve. Mm -hmm. uh, I go back to looking at uh, what happened in 1934 when my father, my own father, was 20 years old mm -hmm. when suddenly Franklin Roosevelt said, okay, all of you Americans can no longer uh, bring your dollar bills in and get gold. Mm -hmm. We're going to stop that, mm -hmm. and we're going to put $50 billion of new, new economic uh, investment into the economy. They were called mm -hmm. the Roosevelt dollars. Mm -hmm. And it basically bootstrapped slowly, but it surely, the country out of depression. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and this has been fought tooth and nail by people who say, well, that's socialism. Mm -hmm. The problem is socialism in today's economy equals survival. Mm -hmm. We have to come up with a way to help one another survive and the capitalist economy cannot do it. Mm -hmm. It's obvious. Mm -hmm. Any, anybody that tells you differently knows they're lying mm -hmm. in their heart and in their soul and in their body. They know that capitalism is killing them. Mm -hmm. It's just that. We'll air the second part of this conversation in our next episode. If you're inspired by this interview and like to support contemporary initiatives in that region, we'd suggest checking out the GoFundMe for Grey Coast Guildhall, which will be linked on our website, partisangardens.org. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served to the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.